Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Our Bible reading for today is from Ephesians 2, um, verses 1 to 10. I'm reading from the NRV. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the uncomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one could boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Yo, hello, hello. How you doing? We're good? Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, for Catherine, for doing the reading. Um, I want to extend my uh, welcome to you. Welcome to City Light North Adelaide. My name is Andrew Tran. I'm actually not from here anymore. I used to be from here. Um, I'm actually living rurally with my wife, um, uh, and we're, but we were back for the X29 conference yesterday. Um, if you have your Bibles, keep them open. Um, unfortunately, Jacko isn't here today, and um, our scheduled preacher, Phil Brown, actually called in sick. So I've been called in last minute to come in, but that's all right. That's all right. It's my honor and privilege to open up the scriptures with you, and I'm out. It's so great to be here. Um, here's people I don't know. That's great. Welcome. If you're new here, welcome. If you're not a Christian as well, welcome to City Light North Adelaide. Um, if you've been here in the last couple of weeks at all, you might, rem- might know that we are going through a series on the Sermon of the Mount, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, right? And hopefully Phil Brown will be back next week to preach on the Sermon on the Mount because um, uh, today we're actually not continuing on in that. We're going to um, um, just detour for a little bit. Um, but as you may or may not know, the Sermon on the Mount is um, Jesus' like, most famous sayings. Right? It's, his, it's a sermon where he tells Christians, he shows Christians, um, God's people, um, what it's like to live under God's grace, what it's like to live as God's forgiven and redeemed people. Um, as Jacob puts it, uh, to live out the Sermon on the Mount is to participate in the mind of the Maker. Um, but if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, there's maybe one particular theme that's been kind of coming out over and over again. And it's, it's, this, it's this idea, it's this theme of we need to recognize our moral bankruptcy before God. We need to recognize our moral bankruptcy before God. Um, now, the Sermon on the Mount, yes, it is Jesus' commands to happiness found in God. But if you read the Sermon on the Mount... As Jesus sits down with his disciples and he's, as he's saying, this is the way, he says this at the start of his sermon. He opens his sermon up with, blessed are the poor in spirit. He opens up this sermon with the basis of this, for in, or, in order for you, in order that for the, the basis of you being happy in God 
it starts off with being poor in spirit. In other words, you need to recognize your moral bankruptcy. You need to recognize your need for God. And this first beatitude sets the tone for the rest of the beatitudes and his instructions. Now, I don't know about you, but um, on initial glancing, I don't like being told that I need to, uh, I need to recognize my need I recognize my, my, my total depravity, my, my spiritual inadequacy. Doesn't it sound a bit odd to you that before Jesus sets up his manifesto for living, quote-unquote, the blessed life, that you need to remember your spiritual inadequacy? Obviously, Jesus didn't get the memo from self-help gurus that, you know, you don't start a personal development course or track by telling them, that your audience are self-sufficient, the self-inefficient, insufficient of themselves. That's the number one rule of alienating your audience, right? And let's face it, we don't like being told that we need to recognize our moral bankruptcy. It doesn't, it doesn't sit well with us. It doesn't, it's not, it doesn't naturally sit well with us. It kind of grains against our natural intuition, does it not? For us profession, professing Christians in the room, we might know this intellectually, that we are morally bankrupt before God, but how often do we ignore our sin instead of acknowledging it? How often do we find comfort in our self-esteem and our pride found in our hearts? How easy is it for us to value ourselves by the works of our hands? Or, or maybe you're not a Christian here today, and there's a high chance you'd agree that like, yeah, no one, no one likes being told they're morally bankrupt, you probably think, it's, that's, an unfair, that's an unfair call, Tran. You, you might think, I'm a good person. You know who's morally bankrupt? Vladimir Putin. That guy is morally bankrupt. I'm not that guy. And if our culture's understanding of Christianity is anything to go by, the first objection is that I'm not that bad to start off with. I'm a pretty good person. And the second objection is like, well, isn't this call to recognize your total depravity? Isn't that what... Isn't that what pretty much Christianity is all about? Isn't Christianity just about feeling guilty and shame of not being a good enough person? And that thinking isn't just for people, I think, outside the church. I think it, doesn't, it wouldn't surprise me here that if maybe some of us might question this, might, might struggle with this ourselves, even as professing Christians. Here's the thing, though. Whether you are a Christian or not here today, just because we don't like the diagnosis doesn't mean that we're not suffering from the condition. You know what I mean? Just because we don't like being reminded of our sinfulness doesn't mean that it's not there. So in our slight detour from the Sermon on the Mount today, we're going to explore what does it actually mean to be poor in spirit? What exactly does it mean? What, is actually, what exactly are we recognizing when we recognize our moral bankruptcy? And why does Jesus even command it? And then, what do, we, what do we do about it? And I think these questions are really, really important questions for us Christians. To, to, we, we need to answer. We need to answer the answer to these questions because it not only determines how you see yourself and your attitude towards God. But then it also feeds out into how you live your life to his glory. And so to answer these questions, we're going to look at Paul's letter to the Ephesians. But before doing that, um, we're gonna, I'm going to ask you to pray with me and ask God that he do, he do something here this morning. 
Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is the means by which we know you. Uh, You have said that when your word goes out, it does not return empty. We pray that this morning that that be the case. We pray, Jesus, that you be magnified this morning, that you increase and we decrease. Spirit, open our eyes, unstick our deaf ears to your goodness and your glory. I pray, Lord, that you hide me and that the words of my heart and the meditation of my mouth be and the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Ephesians, a bit of a background. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, and it's made up of Jews and Gentiles. Um, and he, he, the reason why he's writing it is to encourage them in what they believe. Early he said this, in, early in his letter, Paul says this. Paul was thanking them Paul is thanking God for them. And he prays that they would know God more intimately and that they would experience his power in their lives, particularly now that they're all part of God's family. But before he goes on to tell them what it's like to be in God's family, Paul reminds them of their core identity. And that involves who they were and who they've become. Who they were and who they've become. If you have your Bibles open, let's flick open to Ephesians 2, uh, verse 1. It says this to start off with. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. I'm going to stop right there. The key word here is dead. Dead here being a reference to being spiritually dead, being unable to respond to God. Not just a passive, not just an ignoring, just not an, not an apathetic, but Dead. In this state of being spiritually dead, Paul reminded the Ephesians that they were once stuck in their position that was contrary and opposed to God. Why were they opposed to him? Because because God, at the beginning of time, made humankind just like him, to be his image bearers. And then the disease of sin infected humanity, and that's what separates us from God. He is perfect, and we are not. And there's nothing in our deadness of sin that we can do about it. Paul continues to expound this in verse 2 with the weightiness of the human condition. He says this in verse 2, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world out of the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now working those who are disobedient. Paul here reminds the Ephesians that when they were dead in their sins, They used to live live under an authority that was contrary to God. To follow the ways of the world was to live in ways that did not acknowledge God at all. But Paul reminds them that they also followed the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is at work in now now, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And if you're wondering, what what does that mean? That sounds kind of woohoo, woohoo, demonic kind of stuff. And yes, that is actually a reference to evil powers. <laughs> you might be wondering, is, what, are you, what, is, what's, what is Paul trying to say here? Is Paul saying that are Christians, are, are people who aren't Christians, are, are they controlled by the devil? Is that, is that what he's saying? No, it's, it's, it's way more nuanced than that. You see, we are all living lives that are obedient to something. 
And on this earth, we are subject to the temptations of the evil one. So what Paul is saying here to the Ephesians is that when they weren't saved, since they were living lives that weren't surrendered to God, they were conversely living lives that were ultimately surrendered to the powers of evil. Now, this sounds like a very harsh thing to say in the 21st century, to especially to our postmodern ears, right? This isn't saying, though, that like, non-Christians are, in, are possessed and they need exorcism. That's, that's not what I'm saying at all. Um, I'm, I'm not denying the, <clears throat> the spiritual reality of demonic forces, but the devil's influence is far more subversive and subtle than that. And his influence is seen more often in the ways that we are distracted and blinded into thinking that we don't need God. And that's reflected not just in our external activities, but in the unseen things, as well as our internal thoughts and our attitudes. Now, if you're reading this in the first century, you might be tempted to think, that's not me. <laughs> that's not me. I'm going to put a little asterisk there. Don't worry about me. But Paul does not let you off that easily. He actually drives the nail in the coffin in verse 3. He says this, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Not just one or two of you, or three of us, but all of us. Jews, Gentiles, and even Paul himself. Paul's indictment here to the Ephesians, and by extension, his indictment to every one of us who call ourselves Christians. We were once just like everybody else, doing whatever we wanted to do, giving into our urges and, and impulses, giving, putting something else in the position of God in our hearts that wasn't God. And that in of itself, by its nature, is deserving of judgment and condemnation from a holy, justful God. Because there is only one God, and that God is not you or me. It's not money, it's not health, it's not sex, it's not relationships, it's not comfort, it's not self-actualization. There's only one God, and that's the God of the universe. Now, it's undeniable at this point in Paul's argument that everybody's a sinner. Everybody's a sinner. Like everyone else who's got, but, but like everyone else who has got um, far from God, as a result of our actions towards God and being infected with the disease of sin, we all deserve judgment. And the reason Paul has harped on so much about this is to impress on us, is to really push on us the fact that we are royally stuffed. We are stuffed. Paul was reminding us that when you are dead in your sins, you are hopeless because you have no solution to your tremendous sin problem, and you are helpless because you have no power to do anything about it. He's impressing on us our need to recognize the depths of our depravity so we recognize the dire and desperate state we're in and that we need divine intervention. And friends, this is a humbling thing. This is, this is humbling. To be put in our place, to be reminded of our need for God is humbling. And we don't like being humbled. We don't like, if I'm real for a second, 
I don't want to be humbled. You know what we want? We want to feel power. We want to feel control of our destiny. We want to call the shots. We want to do what we want to do because we think we know better. We don't want to bear God's image. I want to bear my image. We don't want God to be on the throne of our hearts because we want to be on that throne, right? And the outside world is telling us a very similar thing. You just need to manifest your own destiny. You need to find the, the power within yourself to draw this, and draw strength from your inner being to be true to yourself. Be all you can be and live life on your terms. But at the end of the day, friends, when we face the reality of our failings and our moral inadequacies before an infinitely holy God, that's the day when we, when we realize that we've been created in God's image and we have fallen radically short of the glory of being like him. You know what we'll do? There's two options here. We either just ignore it and walk away and go out and get on with life, or it will eventually drive us to our knees and break us. It will drive us to our knees and break us. And if you're skeptical about Christianity or maybe even skeptical about your faith a little bit, maybe some of us might be hearing today like, oh, that, 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 that's, what, that's, that's all God does. He just breaks you and makes you, and he just breaks you and guilts you into being a good person. That's what Christianity really is, right? But friends, let's just think about that for a second. If you try to be a good person, how good is good enough? How good is good enough? The, the truth is, we'll never be good enough. And that leads to sorrow and bitter despair. But you know what? If we look at ourselves and, and how truly broken we are in our, in our state of sin, if we, and, and if we look at how lost we are in our hopelessness and our helplessness, that's, that, that is actually what it is to be in poor in spirit. Because as desolate as things may look, Paul comes in with some incredible news. In verses four to five, it says this, but because of his great, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. If you, if you read this passage at verse three, and just leave it, Depressing would that be? But Paul doesn't leave the the reader here to his own devices. Immediately, he points to the one who can fix it. I don't know if in the NIV it says here, but because. But if you look at the original Greek and in more literal translations like the ESV or something, it reads, "But God." Paul harped on about the the greatness of all humanity's sins to show them that all hope was lost. But then he what? He immediately contrasted the state of our sin to the words, but God, to show us that it's not simply some attribute of God, but it is God himself who is the answer to our sin. Paul is saying here, yeah, you've done messed up. You've messed up big time Ephesians, but you guess what? Because of who? Not because of you, not because of your parents, not because of the priests or the prophets, but because of God. He can overcome the messiness of your sin. 
God is the one who takes us sinners from being spiritually dead, from being made spiritually unable to respond to him, and he makes us able to respond back to him. I don't, and I don't think I can overstate this enough because this is possibly one of the most core tenets of our faith. The transition between verses 3 and 4 here is huge for our understanding in our relationship with God. I mean, if, just indulge me for a second here. Anyone seen Lord of the Rings, Two Towers? Anyone? If, a few people? Okay, about half, or half, or half, that's good. Um, if, you, if you don't know, in Lord of the Rings, the, 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 the Two Towers, the climax of this movie is a 40-minute epic battle called the Battle of Helm's Deep. You might remember, if you've seen the movie, that Helm's Deep is this fortress in this valley. And long story short, the powers of evil are coming to destroy Middle-earth. And in this particular battle, loads and loads of orcs and Uruk are here to kill and destroy. And as the battle goes on, the good guys are absolutely getting hammered. I remember watching this movie as a kid. Um... Like as a teenager, not like a, like a small kid, as a teenager. And in, in the cinema, I remember feeling this grim feeling like, oh man, I, this is not looking good. This is looking really, really bad. They're backed into a corner. They're outnumbered. They're about to be overrun. And in the movie, it's, it's pretty crazy scenes. Peter Jackson does a great job of, of really illustrating that. But towards the end of this battle, just as things are essentially going to end for the good guys, you see Aragorn, our main hero, is encouraged when he sees the night turn to day. And over the hill, looking the, overlooking the valley, is Gandalf the White and this massive, massive group of cavalry called the Riders of Rohirrim. And in the nick of time, Gandalf and the cavalry charge down this huge hill. Everyone's like, to the king! And, yeah, and, and Gandalf blinds the orcs. And in this epic display of triumph, he overcomes the orcs at the Urukai. And I remember in the, in the cinema, you felt this huge, uh, there was this huge feeling of elation. You're like, yeah, boy. You're, you're, just, in the, you're just cheering in your seat. I get, just, I get chills thinking about that right now. Now, why? Because that is just like what happens when our sin comes against the love and mercy of our God. As Christians, sin, death, and destruction was once at our doorstep, but it was God, it was God and his great love and mercy that overcame our enemy. And the crazy thing in verse 5 is that we didn't do anything to deserve it. It says here, he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. He brought us from spiritual death to spiritual life, even though we contributed nothing except for the sin that necessitated him to intervene. God could have just left us in our wallow of sin, and he was well in his rights to just light us up. Because that's what we truly deserve. But it is by grace, it is by unmerited favor that we have been saved. We didn't do anything to deserve it. We couldn't do anything to deserve it. And God's unmerited favor, his grace, doesn't just stop at making us spiritually alive and wiping our our, our sin debt clean. Clean. I'm going to read for us verses 6 and 7. It says this. 
And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God continues to give sinners like you and me unmerited favor, his grace, by raising us up with Christ. Now, this is not simply just in the physical sense that, yes, when we die, we will be raised, our physical bodies will be raised again for sure. Yes, that will happen. But the tense in the sentence here is present. It is here and now. So when it says that we are raised up with Christ, it is our, our standing with God isn't just neutral, but our standing with God is raised up to the point where it is with Jesus. So when God looks at you and you and you, he no longer sees a sinner stuck in sin. But he sees a sinner redeemed as perfect, looking just like Christ. And why does God do that? In verse 7, it says, He does that in order that in the coming age he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. What does that mean? God elevates his redeemed people to flex his deep grace, to flex his glory. It's, better, it's a better deal than being taken from zero to hero because what God is really doing here is taking a person who has a debt of like a trillion, trillion, trillion dollars and he doesn't just wipe it clean, but he gives you a bank account of a trillion, trillion, trillion dollars. I mean, who does that? Nobody. Nobody but God. God does that with our standing with him. He alone does that. And just to make sure that the original readers understood this, that they could bring nothing to their salvation, Paul gives us this in verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not, it's, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We can see here that we have been given undeserved favor, unmerited favor, but we have to trust in it. But even the ability to trust God and have this faith is outside our own capacity. And so it says here, you have been saved through faith, and this whole thing of being saved through faith is not yourselves, but from God. Remember, we were once spiritually dead, unable to do diddly squat. Yes, we are the ones that are doing the believing and trusting, but that ability has been given to us. Salvation in absolutely every aspect and dimension is up to God and not us. And that's why Paul says what he does in verse 9. Salvation is not by works so that no one can boast. Salvation is 100% God's plan. Salvation is 100% God's work. And as a result, God is the one who gets 100% of the glory. It's not like a uni project where you get to contribute 10% of the work and, you, and God gets 100% of the mark. Or a work project where you put in labor, hours of labor and then God takes all the credit. That's not how it works here. God is the one who breaks the hold of sin and death on us. God takes our inability to respond to him and gives us spiritual life. God doesn't just wipe out our sin debt, but he elevates us to the same standing as Jesus. And then God gives us the faith to even accept his grace. 
All of this to show off his incredible character in his love and his mercy through us by giving us his son. The God of the Bible says you cannot earn your way at all, but rather I will give you what you do not deserve because of who I am. This, friends, is unlike any religion or any other worldview out there. Everything else says that you must prove your way to God, prove yourself. You must earn your value. You must prove your way to glory. You must do well enough to be reincarnated into something better. You must be good enough to be accepted. But as Tim Keller really simply puts it, says this, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And so for us who have accepted Jesus, since we have nothing to prove, God calls us to something more. And he says this in verse 10. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ. Jesus, uh, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. As image bearers now, now made whole again, we get to now reflect the image of God to the world as his redeemed people, free from condemnation. We get to live as God intended without needing to prove our worth. And this truly is amazing grace. So what are we, what are we to do with this? What are we to do with this? Firstly, if you've already accepted Jesus in your life, my question is, how are you living in light of Jesus' amazing grace? Especially... How do you respond to God when we sin against him? Because let's be honest, we, we still do that. On this side of eternity, we'll still continue to sin against God, even as his people. But now, you know what? As Christians, we are now able to respond to him. Do we run to him knowing that all, all everything is paid for? Or do we maybe try to revert back to old habits and try to fix it up ourselves or... You know, maybe just ignore it. God has afforded us such immeasurable favor. You can't, you can't measure it. I encourage you to trust him at his word that his favor and his grace is sufficient for you. But secondly, what are we to do about this? This sounds pretty simple, but do you know Jesus? Do you actually know Jesus? Especially if you're not a Christian here today, have you considered what is on offer for you? Do you trust him? Or do you just feel guilt and shame about your sin? About your moral inadequacy? Or maybe you've been a Christian for a while, but faith just feels like you're just not good enough. And you just can't let go of this whole, you just can't let go of this feeling of guilt. Now, I'm not talking about being sorry and lamenting sin because that leads to repentance. What I'm talking about is the feeling of wallowing, reveling in your dread, inadequacy, and condemnation that sin, indwelling sin, brings. And maybe the reason some of us hold on to guilt is that we 
we know that God hates sin so much, but we're afraid that he'll reject us. And so you know what? We'll just solve it ourselves. <laughs> but again, the problem, the, there's a problem that lies in this. One, you've grossly, you've grossly underestimated the seriousness of your sin. And two, you severely underestimated God's ability to fix the problem. You might be thinking, Trent, you, don't, you, you have no idea what I've done. And that's true. I don't, I don't, I don't know what you've done. But you know what? God knows. 100% God knew. 100% Jesus knew. When he went onto the cross and died for you, he knew full well knowing. And I can guarantee you, friends, 2,000 years later, no regrets. 100% no regrets at all. Let me add that feeling guilty about sin is, can be actually normal. But friends, don't wallow in it as a punishment for yourself. Because as intuitive as that might sound to our human ears, trying to punish yourself is actually you trying to earn your penance with God. And the reality is that's not enough. But this kind of answers the question from earlier today. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? To be poor in spirit is not to wallow in sin. But it is to be broken by the seriousness of it and our, to be broken by our inability to do anything about it, and about it, which then drives us to the love and mercy of God. And this is actually a wonderful place to be in because there is amazing grace waiting for you. There's amazing grace waiting for you. So before we finish today, I want to read a story of what that looks like. You might want to follow along with me. It's in Luke 7, verses 36 to 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus, sorry, Luke, Luke 7, sorry, Luke 7, 36 to 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who'd lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if, a man, if this man was a prophet, he would know that who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had been the one who had the bigger debt forgiven? You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her sins have been forgiven, as she as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Brothers and sisters, whether you're a Christian or not here today, let me encourage you. God has showered us with immeasurable grace that we can be called his sons and daughters through his son, Jesus. God is calling you to let go of your sin and guilt, to be poor in spirit, and to trust in Christ that you may enter amazing grace and the wonderful rest that we do not deserve. Pray with me as we ask God to help us revel in that reality. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible gift of grace. It is incomprehensible, it is immeasurable, your love, love, your love knows no ends. Help us get even a glimmer of the totality of your love. We can say nothing, we can do nothing but live in awe of who you are. Give us the gratitude of what, you, of what you've done for us. There is no one like you. Lord Father, we pray that you help us live in the light of your mercy and love. To be more like the people you've called us to be. May your love fuel our lives for the love of others. And help us to share the wonder of this beautiful gospel to a dying world that needs it. We thank you for Jesus and the treasure that he is to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful, and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church.